following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. We talk often about uh, social media and the, the evils and the ills of social media, and there, there are plenty. But there's also some good things. One of my favorite things on social media is, is Facebook has a thing called Memories. If you're on Facebook, you know how this works. It randomly brings up posts that you had on this day, however many years ago. Right? So you, you just get this like instant time capsule that shows you something that happened some time ago. And Aaron and I find ourselves constantly pulling up these memories and, and showing it to each other. Oh, remember this? Right? And we, it's, it's usually a picture of our kids doing something goofy. And what we find ourselves doing is... is Every time, and, and you, may, you may know how this works. I say, I'll take, I say, Aaron, look at this. She'll look at it, and she'll go, even though this picture is only a couple years old, she'll go, aw, they were so little, right? They were so little. And you know how this works. Maybe you look at pictures of your own kids or your grandkids or nieces or nephews or, or kids of your friends, or maybe you even just think back to when you were growing up and you think about some of the stuff you did and, and, and you're like, oh, we, we just, we were so little, right? We were so young. But the thing is, kids grow up. Kids change. They mature, mostly. And so must we. And we understand this, that, that we must mature as human beings. We get older, right? I've got the graying hairs and the receding hairline to tell you, to remind me every morning that I am getting older. But, but, we also must constantly be growing up, growing older, maturing in our faith. I don't care how young or how old you think you are in the faith, you and I still have maturing to do. So the important question before us today is, how, how do I do that? And more specifically, what do I need in my life to help me grow and mature in my faith, whether I've been walking with the Lord for two minutes or for 80 years. What do I need in my life to help me to continue to grow and mature in my faith? Nehemiah is going to give us some answers in chapter 7, verses 1 through 73. Before we get there, we have to remember back to Nehemiah chapter 1. And do you remember what Nehemiah's question was when his brother came back from Jerusalem? He asked him one question. There was this burning question in Nehemiah's heart. He said, hey, tell me about the people. Tell me about God's people and tell me about the city of Jerusalem. And in chapters 1 through 6 of Nehemiah, as we've already studied, God took care of the city of Jerusalem. God gave Nehemiah and the people this work to do of rebuilding the wall. Now in the second half of Nehemiah, we're going to get into the other question. What about my people? What about God's children? And God's going to begin to grow and mature his children. They've taken care of the city. Now, what about the people? And again, as we begin this in chapter seven, we're going to see four requirements for our own spiritual growth. What God puts in place to help his children grow is the same things he puts in our lives to help us grow. And the first 
that we're going to see in verses 1 through 5 is that spiritual growth requires structure. Spiritual growth requires structure, verses 1 through 5. And, and in these five verses, we're actually getting two events that happen here. And, and the first comes in verses 1 through 3. Okay, so let me just read verses 1 through 3 as we start. It said, when the wall had been rebuilt, right, so verses, chapters 1 through 6, the job is done. It's been completed. When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother, Hanani, in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot, and let the doors be shut and secured, securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts, some at their homes. Okay, so stop right there. The first thing, the first uh, piece of structure that Nehemiah puts in is he puts a structure in place to protect the city, to protect these walls that they had just rebuilt. The people appointed some leaders, and Nehemiah appointed two men to put a plan in place to protect the wall, to get the people involved to help protect, to oversee what's going on, to oversee any attack that may come at them. Okay, so we start right there. It says, here's the problem. We got the wall built. Great. Now we have to defend it. Let's put a structure in place. But something else happens. We read on to verses four and five, and it says, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put in my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first. And I found the following written in it. Okay, so before we go any further with that, remember, he said, okay, we've got to protect the city. So we've got this plan. We're going to appoint leaders. We're going to appoint guards. We're going to put them in the right spots. But then Nehemiah looks around and he goes, we don't have enough people to do this. The city is spacious, but there, there aren't enough people here. So God leads Nehemiah, puts in Nehemiah's mind, what he needs to do to address this issue. And so Nehemiah puts this structure in place to, to take a census of the people who were available for this work that was planned to be done. In order to protect the city, in order for the people to do what God had called them to do, they needed this structure. They needed a plan in place, and they needed a plan to put the right people in the right spots takes structure. We need plans in place in our lives if we are to grow, if we are to mature, if we are to continue to do the work that God puts in front of us. And if you doubt that, if you think, no, 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 we don't need structure, let me ask you this. Let's just look at the rest of our lives. Can you get in shape by working out once in a while when you feel like it? No. Do you repair the years of damage that fast food has done by eating a salad once in a while? No. <laughs> and we can't, in the same way, we can't grow in our faith without a plan to help us take steps along the way. You've heard me say this many times, we never drift into what is good. 
whether that's godliness, holiness, or spiritual maturity. We never just happen to fall into being mature in our faith. I see this all the time in in my own quiet time, in my own times of devotion with the Lord. You know when I fail in in my quiet time? It's when I think, oh, I'll get to it later. If, if I don't do it first thing in the morning or maybe first thing when I get to work in the day, I'll go, I'll do it later, right? And then something else comes up and then something else comes up and then something else comes up and I'm laying in bed at night going, I didn't read my Bible today. I didn't spend time with the Lord today. I didn't spend focused time in prayer today. Why? Because I just thought, well, I'll get to it later. When, when it's convenient, there was no plan. There was no structure. In Philippians 2, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, work out your salvation. This doesn't mean try to figure out how you can get saved. The the term used here for work out literally means put into action. He says, you've been saved, now live like it. Put into action, figure out what that means, figure out how you live that out and put it into action. And that is never something that you will do just on a whim when you don't have anything better to do in your life. If we are to continue to work out our faith, if we continue to grow and mature in our walk with the Lord, we must have a plan. Even you fly by the seat of your pants people, you know who you are. Even you know you need some kind of plan in place. And so that question becomes, what's that structure for me? What's that structure for you? Right? And I'm not saying you have to have every single moment of your life planned out and scheduled out and figured out exactly what you're going to do, right? When you're going to do it, and you got to know exactly, well, like, what am I studying today? What am I doing tomorrow? Who am I praying for this? What am I going to, blah, 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 Because right? you'll run yourself ragged and you'll be miserable and you'll quit. But the question is this, what's the one thing you need to do? What's the one area you need structure in your life today? And pick that one area, right? Maybe you do need to schedule a quiet time. Maybe in your personal planner, you need to block out a time in your day. And like, this is the time I'm going to spend with the Lord, reading the word, praying. Maybe you need to be accountable in some things. And so you need to get together with another person on a regular basis to have them hold you accountable to your growth, to your faith, to your commitment, and you need to do the same for them. Right? Maybe it's something very simple. Maybe, maybe you're somebody who goes, I want to spend time with the Lord and get to know him better, but I don't know where to start. And you need to, to jump online and subscribe to an, an online devotional plan that sends you what you need every single day so that you know, hey, I'm going to get this devotion at this time. I can sit and I can read it. I don't know what this is for you. I don't know what the structure is you need because we all need something a little different. But the reality is we have to make a commitment to put a structure in place, to put a plan in place because we will never drift into spiritual maturity. So do do you have a plan as you think about the weeks, the months, the years that lie ahead of you? Do you have a plan to grow and mature? Do you have structures in place to help you in that process? 
Nehemiah put a structure in place for the people to continue the work to become who God had put them there to be. We need that structure as well. The rest of this passage now in Nehemiah chapter 7 is going to break down into this census that God put in Nehemiah's mind to take. And it's really going to be about two different groups and then the response of the people to this census. Okay, and the first group of people is going to show us that spiritual growth requires identity. Spiritual growth requires identity. And this is verses 6 through verse 60. Give us this whole first section. Am I going to read through the whole thing? But let me just read for you verses 6 and 7 so you get a feel for where he's going. Verse 6 says, These are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and Judah to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpreth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baanah. Identity. What does this have to do with identity? The rest now, <laughs> verses 8 through 60, is just going to list name and name and name and name. But what we see, what he tells us in verse 6 and 7, is that every person listed in this next section could trace their family line. They could verify that they had come from the exile back into Jerusalem. They knew who they were. They knew where they came from, and they could prove it. They had this, this paperwork that showed. Right? And, and within this, there are various subgroups, but all of these families could verify their Jewish identity. So you've got to know who you are if you're going to become who God has created you to be. You've got to know who you are to become who God has created you to be. We see this if we go back to the beginning of this exile. If you look in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, when we first see Daniel, it says Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Remember, the, the king brought all the, the smartest, best-looking young men and said, I'm going to train you guys to be in the service of my kingdom. Here's all the best food. Here's the best wine. Here's everything straight from my table. You get all the best of everything. And Daniel's like, that stuff is not what God told me to eat. Right? That's, that goes against God's law. So Daniel instead said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. And through the rest of the story, you see that Daniel eats only what is acceptable under his Jewish identity. And God blesses him and makes him and his buddies stronger and smarter and better at everything they do. God blesses them. Why? Because they knew who they were and they refused to compromise to what was around them. Daniel was so solid in his identity as God's child, as one of God's chosen people, that he stands firm in his faith and firm in his calling, even in a hostile land, which leads him eventually to a position of authority in a foreign kingdom. But for him to become who God created him to be, he had to stand firm in his identity and who he was. 
So as you think about growing and maturing in your faith, let me ask you this this morning. Who are you? Who are you? And as I ask that question, you probably got a lot of descriptions that come through your head, right? Maybe you think, well, I'm a, I'm a parent. I'm a friend. I'm a student. I'm a, a helper. I'm an encourager. I'm an intellectual. I'm a sports fan. Maybe you think I'm a failure. I'm a fool. Maybe you think I'm forgotten. You're going to have a lot of descriptions that come into your mind about who you are. But let me say this. That's not who you are. That's not who you are. That's who you think you are. That's who the world tells you you are. That's who your circumstances tell you you are. But God is the only one who gets to tell you who you are. And you know who he says you are? God says you are beloved, Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. God says you're beloved. God says you are chosen, holy, and blameless. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, he says, for God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. God says you are bold in Ephesians 3.12, where he says in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. God says you are free. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. God says you are his child. 1 John 3, verse 1 says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. God says you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 16 and 17 says, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Think you're forgotten. Think you're a failure. Think you're a fool. Think you're a pretty good person. Think you're successful think you're whatever you want to think you are. That's not who you are. God alone gets to tell you who you are. And this is what he says you are. Beloved, chosen, holy, blameless, bold, free, a child of God, a co-heir with Christ. And he says so much more about the incredible things of who you are in him. And listen, if that's who you are, if that's who we are, should that change what we think we are capable of doing? Should that change what we feel we want to do with the rest of our lives? It absolutely should. If it doesn't, it absolutely should. Understanding our identity, understanding who we are in Jesus Christ is crucial to the confidence and the security that we need in order to continue to grow and mature in our faith. So let me ask you again this morning, who are you? You want to apply this this week? Maybe go home and, and, and number a piece of paper from one to, I don't, I don't care what you number it to, two, 20, 45, whatever you want to do. Right, but then start looking through scripture. Start saying, who does, who does God say I am? Maybe on the other half, 
without thinking about it, just write down a bunch of things of who you are and see if they line up with what God says about you. And those ones that don't line up, just scratch them out. The big, fat magic marker. We have to understand who we are. We have to have our identity secured in Christ if we're going to be who he has called and created us to be. So that first group, in that sense, it shows us that spiritual growth requires identity. But there's another group living in and around Jerusalem at this time. And, and this group we're going to see can't prove their Jewish heritage or their rights to be settled in the land. And through them, Nehemiah is going to teach us that spiritual growth requires purity. Spiritual growth requires purity. Verse 61 through 65 and let me read here in verse 61. He says the following, and so he's, he's telling us, he's shifting gears here. It's not those who, who knew their identity, but now it's, it's another group. He says the following are those who came from Telmelah, Talharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emer, but were unable to prove their ancestral families and their lineage were Israelite. Right, so he says, these people can't prove it. And then in verse 63, he says, there's even some priests among this. And you jump down to verse 64, he says, these searched for their, for their entries in the genealogical records, but they could not be found. Now listen, so they were disqualified from the priesthood. This is about purity. The key to these verses is that since this group of people, including the priests, couldn't substantiate their family line, then they could not be allowed to serve as priests or Levites or serve in the temple because this would violate God's law. And, and Nehemiah says, hey, maybe, maybe they are legitimately Israelites, but we can't prove that. And he says, so I cannot allow even a hint of impurity into God's temple and into his presence. When we talk about purity in our own lives, it's really easy for us to start thinking perfection, right? And then we're automatically defeated because we go, well, I'm not perfect, right? Anybody? Nobody says I'm perfect. Jerry. So talk to Jerry after service, and he will tell you exactly what to do. But, but we all understand that we are not perfect. We are all far from perfect. And so when we talk about purity, we're not talking about necessarily perfection, because if that were the case, then none of us would ever be able to be considered mature in any way, shape, or form. Purity is our consuming commitment to be set apart for and by Jesus Christ. In 1 John 3, 9, John writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Right? Some translations say, no one sins, or they do not sin. The point John is making here is not that you will be perfect, because there has never been a person, aside from Jesus Christ, who fulfilled that. But he says, if God dwells in you, then your desire is for his perfection. And you do everything you can to pursue that, to reject wickedness, to reject unrighteousness, and hold on with both hands as tight as you can to the perfection of Jesus Christ, to be more and more like him. 
what this means is we can earn a lot of degrees. We can learn a lot of stuff. We can read a lot of books. We can watch great documentaries. We can be insightful students of humanity. We can even do all the right stuff on the outside. But that's not what propels us to spiritual growth. That's not what propels us to grow and mature in Christ. Because what we'll find at the end of this life is that there are a lot of kind, caring, intelligent, church-going folks who will spend an eternity in hell because they relied on their efforts over God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We seek the purity of Christ. We pursue him with all that is within us. Will we fall along the way? Yes. That's okay. It's not okay, but it's okay. Because we're going to get up and we're going to walk after him again as he lifts us and walks with us. When our hearts and our lives are set on the purity of Jesus Christ, then we will become more and more like him. But it can't be, I want to pursue Jesus and. It can never be Jesus and. It is a purity of our devotion to the purity of our Savior that leads to a purity of our hearts that lets us stand before the purity of our holy God for all of eternity. We will grow in knowledge, we'll grow in grace, we'll grow in faith because we've been purified by his work. So why will you do whatever you do today? Whatever God puts before you today, this week, this month, this year, this rest of your life, why will you pursue that? This is simply because Jesus is pure and holy, and he has called you. Spiritual growth requires purity. Nehemiah has taken this census of the people. He's got those who can verify their Jewish identity. He's got those who cannot. And after taking stock of, of the population around him, Nehemiah turns his attention and turns our attention to what the people did at this point, how they maintained their focus on the glory and the goodness of God even after the completion of their mission, the rebuilding of the walls. In verses 66 through 73, we learn that spiritual growth requires sacrifice. Spiritual growth requires sacrifice. Starting in verse 70, it says, Some of the family heads contributed to the project. The governor gave 1,000 gold coins, 50 bulls, and 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family heads gave 20,000 gold coins and 2,200 silver minus to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,000 silver minus, and 67 priestly garments. The priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple singers, some of the people, temple servants, and all Israel settled in their towns. 
we look at this, at the completion of this project, and we see this one simple thing. There's one thing that should stand out to us from these verses, and that's that the people gave. The people gave. Not everyone. Not everyone gave. But the people gave what they could to the Lord. They were willing to sacrifice because they knew the glory of who God was. And they knew the blessings they'd already received by setting their lives aside to do what God had called them to do. And so now they continue. They were willing to sacrifice for the glory of God's kingdom. I was thinking about this this, this last week because uh, I recently started, started jumping rope as part of my normal workout program. And if you think jumping rope, right, it's something little kids do in PE class. In fact, my kids just got done with the, the jump rope section of PE. All right, so it's a really simple thing, right? You just jump rope. How hard could it be? And then I start trying to jump rope, and I, I was just horrible. It was terrible. I couldn't, I, like, two jumps, and I'm hitting my foot, and I'm, it, it was awful. So I did what I always do when I feel lost in something. I went to YouTube, and I spent like an hour. I, I, I kid you not. I kid you not. I spent an hour watching videos of jump rope form. Like, how do you jump rope without tripping over yourself? Like, an hour. So then, oh, well, that, okay, okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. Right, so, so I took that, and, and now, after several weeks, after having watched all these videos and, and now starting to put this into action, I'm still horrible, but I'm slightly better than I was before. But, but the thing is, I didn't improve. I didn't get that marginally slightly better because I watched some videos on YouTube. I got better because I took that and I put it into action. Because I spent time and energy working on it. Sacrificing time and energy to get better at this. The people of Jerusalem sacrificed for God's glory and for the goodness of his holy city. They sacrificed their time, their energy, their treasures. They wanted to know God's glory even more. They wanted to see God continue the work that he was doing. And so they sacrificed. And if we're going to grow in our faith, if, if you and I want to grow in our faith, we also must be willing to sacrifice. This is not new information, right? It takes sacrifice in order for us to grow. And I think it, it, we, could, we could really narrow that sacrifice that willingness into to two categories. First, growth comes from joyful sacrifice. Joy, joyful sacrifice. Growth comes from joyful sacrifice. Begrudging offerings on our part don't cut it. If everything we do, we say, well, I'm giving up this, this whatever it is. I'm sacrificing this because I think it'll make me look better because I think it will make me happier, because I think it serves me better, understand that's, that's not obedience. That's not going to develop growth in you. It's going to be a sacrifice, sure, but it's not a pleasing offering to the Lord. 
We come with joy, knowing who he is, knowing what he has done, knowing what he will continue to do, and we give with joy, not because it serves us, but because it serves him. Growth comes from joyful sacrifice, but also this. Growth comes from determined sacrifice. Determined sacrifice, meaning this. To grow in our faith, to sacrifice in a way that allows us to grow in our faith is not a giving of our leftovers. It's not saying to the Lord, you can have whatever I'm not using, whatever is left over. After I've gotten everything I want and done everything I want, you can have this time of my day, right? If I get to the end of the day and I'm not too tired and there's not a show I want to watch, and there's not something else I'd rather be doing than I'll read my Bible for a little bit. No. We don't give from our leftovers. We give in a determined way. Let's talk about the, the aspect of this that everybody loves to hear the pastor talk about, which is financial giving, our tithes and our offerings. If, if you don't give financially, if you don't give in a determined way financially, understand this, you will never know the fullness of God's blessings. It will not happen. I, I, I could show you non-Christian finance books who will tell you you need to give sacrificially and in a determined way. They don't say give to the church. They don't say give to the Lord, right? They use other language for that, but they'll say, this is what is best, and when I read those things, I'm like, duh, could have told you that. I didn't, need, <laughs> I didn't need a finance expert to tell me that. I've read the Bible. But if, if we do not give in a determined way financially, we'll never know the fullness of God's blessing. And that's not a health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel charge. Like, hey, if you give this, God's going to do all these great things for you, and you're going to be happy. No, that's, that's not what it's about. But I was talking with, with some guys over the last couple of weeks and we see that in the Gospels, Jesus talks more about money than anything else. You know why that is? It's not because Jesus wants money. It's not because Jesus needs our money. He does it because it is a, a very good outward expression of the state of our hearts. Because Jesus says in, in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. He says, the way you handle money tells a lot about where your heart is with the Lord. So Jesus says, let's get that right. And, and listen, if you're offended that I'm telling you you need to give sacrificially and financially, don't give to this church. Jason's gonna be upset that I said that. Don't give to this church. Give elsewhere. Because my concern is not that you give money to this church. My concern is that you know the goodness and the fullness of the God we serve. And if you are so devoted to your money that you cannot give to him, you will never know the fullness of his blessings in your life. If we are going to give, we must give joyfully and in a determined way, sacrificing our lives and every aspect of our lives to the glory of God's kingdom. Why? Because that's the way Jesus did it. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, 
He gave joyfully of his own life for us. In Luke chapter 9, it talks about Jesus just before heading to Jerusalem, says he had his face set on Jerusalem. He was determined there was nothing that was going to hold him back from doing what God had called him to do. He, he was determined. And he carried out his mission, his calling. We give, we sacrifice, because that is the example that was given to us. That Jesus came, lived this perfect life, the only person who never deserved death. The only one who never should have died. The only one who never should have taken on any kind of punishment. The only one who should have never been reviled and rejected. Yet for all that he had, he says, I'm laying that aside. And he endured the cross, the suffering, the shame, giving his blood, giving his very life to pay for you and me? I don't know where you sit with that, but that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Jesus' blood was worth way more than me. But he sacrificed with joy in this determined way. And if he gave everything for me, how could I not want to give everything in return? How could I not be willing to sacrifice what I have for his glory, for his honor, and for his kingdom. The difficult question that we have to ask ourselves today is, are we obedient to God's call to fully surrender to him? Are we going to grow and mature in our faith by giving, by being willing to give everything to him? Spiritual maturity and growth is not something at which you and I will ever arrive. Yes, we want to grow. We want to know Christ better. We want to know the richness of the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to be more courageous in our faith and more bold in our witness. But we also know that if we ever reach that point in our lives where we feel like, I, I'm there. I don't need to grow anymore because I am as mature as mature can get realize we are in dangerous red flag territory. Because the more we grow in our Christian faith, the more we realize there is to know about God's love, about Christ's sacrifice, about the Spirit's work in our lives and in the world among us. The more joy we find in the salvation and the calling we have received and the more passionately we desire to walk with our God. True, deepening, growing, fruit-bearing faith is marked by the desire to be more faithful, to go deeper, to grow stronger, and to bear greater fruit. Again, that never happens by chance. To grow in our spiritual lives, we need structure to, to guide us, to keep us on track. We need a sense of identity to show us who we are and, and who we were made to be. We need a desire for purity to keep us intolerant of the sin in our own lives and striving for the holiness of the one who has called us into his family. And we need a willingness to sacrifice, to keep reminding us that this life is not about us, but about the glory and the honor and the power of our great and awesome God. Church family, may we always be content in the Lord 
but may we never be content with how far we have gone in our journey with him into the faithfulness of our calling, our mission, and the work that has been set before us as children of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And as we grow, may we know better and better the truth and the beauty and the joy and the hope that is found only in the love, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the incredible nature of who you are for the fact that you are the good and perfect God. The one who has given everything that we might be redeemed, bought back, made right with you. And Lord, we repent of the ways in our lives in which we have taken that for granted, in which we've said, thank you. Thank you for for saving us. Now let us go do what we want to do. And Lord, we repent, we turn. We come back. And as we do, as we do, Lord, may we be reminded of the joy and the hope that we have as your children. And as your children, we continue to grow. We continue to mature. We continue to strive to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And Father, in those times, if there are times where we become content that we are Christ-like enough, uh, Lord, just remind us of what you have given for us, what you have done for us. And renew in our hearts the desire to know you and love you and serve you with all that we have and all that we are. We love you. And in your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.